Nahum chapter 1. The burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite, God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord have his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebuke of the sea and make of it dry and dry up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth and Carmel and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. The mountains quake at him and the hills melt and the earth is burned at his presence. Yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. I'm going to preach to you this morning from the book of Nahum on who can stand before his presence. Who can stand before his presence? And in this part of this chapter, we see much about the wrath of God. But before we get to that, um, I want to center in on verse 3. And it says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. And so first here we see that the Lord is slow to anger. And now in this book of Nahum, God is angry. God is angry at Nineveh. God is angry at the Assyrians. And he will not acquit the wicked. They must pay for their crimes. They must pay for their brutality. But here there's that disclaimer that says, The Lord is slow to anger. When the Bible speaks about the anger of God, it's not talking about the wrathful anger of man. You know, like James 1.19 says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. And so here, typically, when man gets in his wrath, he ends up acting ungodly, typically. You know, Proverbs 16, 32 says, He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that rule of his spirit than he that take of his city. And so here the Bible saying is, man, he that is slow to anger, he that has self-control of his own emotions, it's better than a mighty army. It's better than one that could conquer a city. It's one that could control his own spirit. Now, anger of itself is not sin. 
But it's important to be slow to anger. You know, the Bible says, be angry and sin not. You know, when there are sometimes times where it's righteous to be angry. You know, when they made the house of God a house of merchandise where people were making their private profit when they came to the house of God, Jesus was angry about it. That's not what the house of God was for. And he had righteous anger. The Bible says, let not the sun go down upon your wrath. You know, being angry should not be a continual state of your lifestyle. You shouldn't be angry every day and then at night and then wake up angry and bitter. Proverbs 15, 18 says, A wrathful man stir of up strife, but he did is slow to anger a piece of strife. Proverbs 19, 11 says, The destruction of a man defer of his anger, and it is his glory to pass over a transgression. Now, you know, sometimes someone maybe does commit some kind of fault to you. You don't always need to respond in anger. But you could defer that anger. You could pass over the transgression against you. Psalm 145, verse 8 says, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and of great mercy. The Lord is good to all, and His tender mercies are over all His works. It's the Old Testament. You know, a lot of times people want to say, oh, the Old Testament is all wrath, and the New Testament is all about God being loving. But no, you see them both in both. You see the wrath of God in the Old Testament, as we've been reading in Nahum, and you see of the grace, the mercy of God in the, in the Old Testament as well. And in the New Testament, likewise, yes, we see that Jesus is meek and lowly. That He'll give His people rest. Well, you read in Revelation 19, and you see Jesus, the Son of God, whose name is the Word of God, comes down, conquering and coming down, bringing His wrath, bringing His judgment upon a, a people that brings their army to come against the Son of God. And He destroys them with the word of His mouth. That is the same Jesus that came riding on a donkey, meek and lowly. Mercy, grace, and the wrath of God are not at all incompatible. Now understand that God expressing wrath is not like a human losing his temper. God does not flash with anger and then all of a sudden throw an unsuspecting angel across the universe. And then go, oh, I'm so sorry. I just lost control of my emotions. That's not how God's wrath works. It's not that he just lost his temper. But his wrath goes upon a deserving people. You know, you see today, you know, at Bergdahl, um, you know, it was a traitor to his country. And the judge lets him out free, just with a discharge, but no prison time. A lot of veterans were upset, were angry about that. Why were they upset? Because there was no justice. 
There was no punishment for his crimes. Whereas someone maybe would go to jail for maybe evading taxes. But didn't they escape jail time for being a traitor completely to their country? The justice system in many times, many places, is broken. And yet, same people that will complain about the wrath of God or that God is so condemning. But we condemn other judges when they don't execute the right wrath, when they don't execute justice in society. And now God is love, as 1 John 4, 16 says. But because God is love, justice is a necessity. And the people of Israel have been, suffered brutality from Nineveh. Had their people killed. Um, had all kinds of violence done unto them. And so God is going to pour His wrath upon Nineveh. Now understand, go ahead and turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter 3. Second Peter 3 in verse 9. says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know, I hear the Bible is declaring God. It's, he is long-suffering. He has suffered long. He is being slow to anger. And that He would rather people to come to repentance. To turn to Him. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. In the west the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Herod, the presence of God, that one day the heavens and the earth is going to dissolve. It is going to melt. The wrath of God is going to be poured upon this earth. That's the real global warming people need to be worried about. It's the judgment upon the world. And so we see that because God is loving, God gives a warning that He's been long-suffering to Nineveh. That He wanted them to repent. He didn't want them to face destruction. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. In Matthew 3, verse 7, when John the Baptist was preaching, he called the Pharisees and Sadducees, O generation of vipers! Who have warned you to flee from the wrath to come. He preached on the wrath of God to the religious leaders. About the wrath that was going to come. And then he says, bring forth therefore fruits meat for repentance. That the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they had a space, a time to repent. But the Bible talks about how Israel was broken off because of unbelief. That God would then blind their eyes that they don't see the truth because they believe not the truth in righteousness. 
That there could be a time where God turns someone over to a reprobate mind. Where God is done working on that individual. But here, he called them a generation of vipers. That's not something nice. Okay? It's not something that we would think of. You know, if all preachers preach like this, you know what? The pews would be really empty everywhere around. You know, if Joel Osteen preached like that, called the people a generation of vipers, no, it wouldn't be a multi-million dollar business that he has. Ezekiel 18.23 says, Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, say of the Lord God, and not that he should return from his ways and live? Ezekiel 33, verse 11. says, Say unto them, As I live, say of the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God is getting his message across. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That he does not get pleasure in having people burn in hell. He says, but did the wicked turn from his way and live? Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways. For why will ye die, O house of Israel? God warns them. He cautions them about the wrath. Because his wrath has to go down upon people when they sin. His wrath needs to go upon a people that have broken his law. Otherwise there would be no justice. Turn to Jonah. Jonah chapter 1. Jonah 1 in verse 1. It says, Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the son of the Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come before me. But Jonah rose up to flee from Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa and he found a ship going to Tarshish. And so here we see God sent Jonah to the city of Nineveh. And who was the one that wasn't merciful? It wasn't God. It was Jonah. Jonah didn't want to go. Well, eventually... He ends up saying, all right, Lord, I'll go. And so Jonah 3, you know, he says, And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach it unto it, the preaching that I bid thee. Don't just go and give a soft, a smooth message. You preach what I told you to preach. To preach. What God told them to preach. And God's message is not always just about butterflies and rainbows. But about judgment. That he will come and he will judge the world. In verse 4, it says, And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. 
That's the message God told them to preach. 40 days, Nineveh is going to be overthrown. You know, many of the false prophets in the Old Testament, they spoke what the king wanted them to say. What the state, what the government wanted them to say. You know, in Nazi Germany, you know what the churches often did? They preached what Hitler wanted them to say. They didn't have the backbone to say, be like John the Baptist and preach to Herod and, and say, um, who you have is your wife, isn't your wife. That he took his brother's wife. They were willing to preach the word of God to the kings. Preach the word of God, even when it conflicted with the state. And here Jonah is preaching against Nineveh. And then we see what happens so in verse 5. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And then go ahead and go to verse 9. It's, and then he says, Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? And God saw their works that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. You see, God wanted Jonah to go and preach a message that wasn't tickling the ears so the people would repent. When the false prophets would preach and say peace and prosperity were coming, when God already promised judgment, the people didn't repent. Instead, they worshiped their idols. They worshiped their false gods. And then God's judgment would come upon the nation and the prophets would be held accountable and that they would be called on the carpet for being a people that hated the people rather than being shepherds that cared for the flock of Israel. They were spreading a false message of hope when destruction was imminent. See, in chapter 4, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repentest thee, of the evil. And so Jonah didn't want to go because he knew God was gracious. He knew God was just. He knew God would hold Nineveh accountable for their actions and their rejection of God. And, God, and Jonah wanted them to face that judgment. And so Mankind often wants to think of God as just some evil guy in the sky. But when we see it in the Bible and see in life, it is mankind that is more cruel than God is. God is merciful. God is gracious. But he must execute justice. We see that God chastens his own people. In Jeremiah 30, 11, he says, for I am with thee, say of the Lord, to save thee. Though I make a full end of all nations whither I have scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee. 
but I will correct thee in measure and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. So God's telling his people, the Israelites, that you know what? I've scattered you, you know, into these various nations, to these wicked pagan nations. It's part of judgment upon you to chasten you. But he makes this promise, I will not put another into you. You know, you're going to see the grace, you're going to see the mercy of God, but I'm not going to leave you unpunished. And that's why when the book of Nahum comes about, and the name Nahum means comfort, that the Lord Jehovah comforts. Because he is one Israel, no. You know what? There's been times you weren't left unpunished. You face consequences of your actions. And Nineveh has a coming for him. Now again, about 100 years earlier, Nineveh repented. And they got right with God. But the next generations, they were evil against God again. And so he preached against them. What's Israel? No. God is a God of comfort. He will punish the evildoers that have been brutal to you. But you'll be, you won't all together be unpunished. In 2 Samuel 24, won't go there because of time, but in there, 2 Samuel 24, David commits a sin. And you know what sin was? Counting people. But how, how is that a sin? Well, at this time, God told him not to. You know, sometimes kids wonder, like, why is this wrong? Why, why can't I do that? Well, because your parents told you not to. So disobedience is a sin. And so God told them not to number the people, but simply to trust in the Lord. That, you know what, God could save, whether by few or by many. He doesn't need a large army to protect Israel. He could use a few or he could use a lot. But David sinned and numbering the people. And, God, and, and, and so God sent a prophet and said, you choose one of three penalties. What do you want to pay? Go ahead and turn, go ahead and turn there. Um, 2 Samuel 24. Second Samuel chapter 24. And God give, gives them three choices. Do you want to suffer a famine? Do you want to have your enemies pursue you? Or do you want a pestilence? Second Samuel 24, verse 12. Or verse 13. So Gad came to David and told him and said unto him, Shall seven years of famine come unto thee in thy land? Or wilt thou flee three months before thine enemies while they pursue thee? Or that there be three days pestilence in thy land? Now advise, and see what answer I shall return to him that sent me. And David said unto Gad, I am in a great strait. Let us fall now into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. And let me not fall into the hand of man. Here David realized he was going to be facing a consequence for his sin. But he had rather fall in the hand of God even in God's judgment, than to face his enemies 
his human enemies. He recognized that God's mercy, God's grace, is way greater than mankind's. And so in here we've read over all that God is gracious, God is long-suffering, that God is slow to anger. God could have wiped Nineveh out right away. But he was long-suffering. He is not soon to anger. Back in Nahum, in verse 2, it says, God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth. God is jealous. Exodus 20, verse 3 says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. You know, sometimes people will question, you know what, God is jealous? Isn't jealousy a bad trait to have? Well, jealousy is a sin when it is a desire for something that does not belong to you. When you're jealous of someone else, of what they have that you don't have, then it's an act of covetousness, a heart of covetousness. It's jealousy. And that is wrong. But that is not the type of jealousy God is having. God is jealous over something that rightly belongs to Him. Worship belongs to God alone. Not to these idols of gold. Not to these images made out of wood. All things that God initially made the materials for. And then man is making it into their own images that they want to make, and they're worshiping it. Worship belongs to God. And so God has every right to be jealous because it belongs to Him. He's not wishing for something that doesn't belong to Him. We see in Nahum that God is jealous over Israel. That Nineveh has been torturing Israel. And God is jealous as a husband would be over his wife. You know, look at this way. If a husband sees another man flirting with his wife, he is right to be jealous. Because that's his wife. She belongs to him. For only he has the right to flirt with his wife. This type of jealousy is not sinful, but entirely appropriate. And being jealous for something that God declares to belong to you is good and appropriate. God will punish the people that tortured Israel, His people. Nineveh tortured them. And God is jealous over His people with a godly jealousy and will punish those that tortured Israel. In Nahum, it says that he is great in power. 
Great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord have his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebuketh the sea and maketh it dry, and drieth up all the rivers, Bashan. I um, mean, we see Carmel and the flower of Lebanon, um, that they language. And so we see that God will oftentimes use nature will use what we see as storms, what we see as tornadoes, what we see as earthquakes, as part of His judgment. It's part of His judgment that the Lord have His way in the whirlwind. We say with Jesus that even the seas obeyed Him. We see the crossing of the Red Sea, that God rebuked the wind, the, the the waters, that it made the waters dry ground in the middle, and then Israelites were able to cross the Red Sea and then bring the waters back upon Egypt. We see these three places that are mentioned, Bashan, located below Mount Hermon, east of the Jordan, was known for her lush pastures. You see that in Micah 7.14. You see, Carmel along the coast of Canaan became synonymous with fruitfulness in Song of Solomon 7.5. And Lebanon was renowned for her beautiful cedar trees. And basically says that they're going to suffer a famine. It's part of the judgment of God. The mountains quake at him. The hills melt. The volcanoes go off. That all of those sometimes go off with, for, with God pouring his wrath out. Now this does not mean every natural disaster is a part of God's judgment. And so it's not for us when we see, say, the hurricanes come in and destroy Houston to say, oh, that's the wrath of God. It could be. But... It may have nothing to do with that. And there's Christians in Houston, and they suffered from the flood as well. And the Bible says that his people are not subject to his wrath. Okay, in, in 1 Kings 19.11, it says, And he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains, and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. Now sometimes things are just the natural course of nature. As God set things up. God's so sovereign over it all. But it's not always as part of His judgment. But it often is. You read throughout the scriptures. You know what? Earthquakes. You know what? Volcanoes. Um, all these things often happen at the wrath of God. And he goes, and after the fire, a still, small voice. And you know what? God is always in all of those things. But he's still speaking. And Nahum... It says, the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and reserve of wrath for his enemies. 
Revenge, vengeance, is used three times here. But understand that God will be righteous in his wrath. Genesis 18 says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Vengeance belongs to the Lord. We hear when we respond at times and want to take retaliation. Because the Bible says that God gives the vengeance. You know, you're a persecuted people. We're not to go persecute back. No, you let the Lord deal with it. You know, sometimes they have discipline with children. You know, sometimes one might get the discipline the hardest even when someone else initiated a fight. It's because they're trying to take vengeance on their own. No, in this particular case, the parents are the judge. The other child would have, been, would have been disciplined and still is. But the other didn't have to be. But when we take vengeance ourselves, it's trouble. You know, let God do the punishment. Let God do the punishment. When someone does you wrong, let God do the punishment. I mean, you have the spirit that Moses had, that he still prayed for those that opposed him, those that murmured against him. Pray for them. Pray for God's grace. Pray for God's mercy. Hebrews 10.30 says, For we know him they have said, Vengeance belong unto me. I will recompense, say of the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Go ahead and turn to Romans 1. Romans 1 and verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness because that which may be known of God is manifest in them for God hath showed it unto them for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And so here we see the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, against all unrighteousness. And so the Lord is furious. God is angry with Nineveh. They've been a wicked people. And God is angry with our culture when it is in sin. When our culture ends up glorifying sexual things that um, that are sinful. Um, Incest, homosexuality, fornication, adultery. All of this is sin. And God is angry with it. God despises it. God has made man in his image. And he took woman from man and said, here's two, that they shall be one flesh. He's given the blessing of marriage. He loves us as his people. But when we take what God has created as wonderful and beautiful and pervert it, God is displeased. God is displeased with a culture that glorifies witchcraft. That first they come out of these old cute 
I'm low shows. I'm Sabrina, the teenage witch. You know, you still gave in a lot of Disney movies, and they have the good wishes. And then we should soak it in. What offends God ought to offend us. We ought to have nothing to do with that which God despises. God is angry with the wicked every day. God will judge. You know, so often people will say things like, you can't judge me. You can't judge me. God is my judge. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God, an angry God. We ought not to say those words lightly. Yes, we as Christians, we don't want to be coming across as condemning, but being gracious. But sometimes that means giving them the message that God gave. And that this is sin, this dishonors God, and we must repent, and we must turn to Christ. And you don't say that out of hate or out of, I'm more righteous than you. You say, no, so that they could have a relationship with Christ, a relationship with God. God is going to judge, and his wrath is going to come out. And we see, as we read through the book of Nahum, that his wrath does come upon the unrighteous here. And verse 6 says, Who can stand before his indignation? And who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? Again, people will say the wrath of God is incompatible with a loving God. But no, wrath and mercy are not incompatible. They are exercised toward different objects. The wrath of God is poured upon an unrepentant people, and His mercy is shown upon a repentant people. Both are sinners. Both have done wrong. Both have been guilty before Almighty God. Joel 2. We're going to turn to Joel 2. All right, good, I found it. I started to forget where it was. Joel 2, verse 10. Says the earth shall quake before them, the heavens shall tremble, the sun and the moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining, and the Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for he is strong that execute of his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? Therefore also now, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart, and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repent of him of the evil. Who knoweth if he will return and repent, and leave a blessing behind him? The wrath 
and the mercy and the grace of God both exist because both must exist. It's a necessary part of God's moral character to abhor evil as well as to love good. Go ahead and turn you to Acts 17. Acts 17, verse 30. I asked this question in the beginning. Who can stand before his presence? You know, we see earlier, you know, the Bible talks about no one can see the face of God and live. That's man in his sinful state. Who can stand before his presence? Acts 17. In verse 30, it says, In the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now command of all men everywhere to repent, because he have appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he have ordained, whereof he have given assurance unto all men, and that he have raised him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. So Paul, Paul departed from among them, howbeit certain men clave unto him and believe. And so here we see that there are times where God winked at, but now God commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he's appointed a day and that he will judge the world by the man Jesus Christ. You know, we are all by nature were, at least, by nature, the children of wrath. Ephesians 2.2 says, Where in time past ye walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we also had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others, but God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love, whereof he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, have quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. You know, the Bible says, you know what, being children of wrath, that could be a thing of the past. Because of God's mercy, God's grace upon a repentant people. Romans 5 8, it shows that God wants to reconcile us. In, in 5 8, it says, But God commended his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, deserving the wrath of God. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if we, if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received atonement. God's given us a way of deliverance through the person of Jesus Christ. He's delivered us from the wrath to come for believers. 
1 Thessalonians 1.9 says, For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And you wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. God's wrath is coming one day. But for those in Christ, he gives deliverance to. In chapter 5, verse 9, it says, For God have not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Who can stand before God's presence? Those who have been redeemed. Those who have had their sins forgiven. John 3.36 says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abideth on him. You know, we'll get it this way. God took his Son, the object of his love, and made him the object of his wrath. It pleased him to bruise him for our iniquities. That we, who are children of wrath, we that are sinners, we that deserve the wrath of God, we're the object of God's wrath. But now we could become the sons of his love. The object of his love. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, his propitiation. I mean, he became the substitute for us where we deserve the wrath of God, but Jesus took our place. He was the propitiation not for our sins only, as First John says, but for the sins of the whole world. But they must believe. They must receive Christ. Bible says, as many as receive him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. That we who deserve to be the object of God's wrath could be vessels that he shows his mercy to. What a gracious God we serve. A merciful God. A God that's loving. A God that sent Jonah to Nineveh. Because he loved the people of Nineveh even though they were wicked. But he had to execute justice unless they turned to the Lord. Then they could have God's mercy. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior today, you don't know Him. If you don't know you have eternal life, you could be an object of His mercy, of His grace. Let's go ahead, all heads bowed, eyes closed, and let's go ahead and stand. So the pianist comes forward and plays this song. Use this time for prayer. If you don't know Jesus, your Savior, come let me know, and we'll go to another room, and we'll show you from the Bible how you could have eternal life. Your lady, my wife could go. You're a believer. You're already a Christian. Spend this time in prayer. Come to the altar if you wish, or you could stay where you're at. 
It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. And God chastens his own people. We may be saved. We're saved from the wrath that's to come. But there could still be chastening. And it's so much better to avoid the chastening. Or if you're in the chastening, to then repent and draw nigh to God. So I don't know where your heart's at. I don't know your secret sins. I encourage you to take this time to confess it to the Lord. Pray for others, family members, friends, neighbors that currently have the wrath of God that's upon them, that's coming on them, going to come, unless they seek Christ. Unless they receive Christ as He reveals Himself to them. Pray for them. Better yet, go to them and share them the gospel.